Dear friends in Christ, I wonder how many of you remember a man named Noel Coward. He died in 1973, so a lot of his career pictures are in black and white, as opposed to color photos. But Noel Coward, he was a famous British playwright, a composer, a director, an actor, and a singer. And he once played a joke on 20 of the most famous men in London. And he sent all 20 an identical note which says, Everybody has found out what you have done. If I were you, I'd get out of town. You know what all 20 men did? They all got out of town. Now, what if you had opened your mail and you had found such a note? Everyone has found out what you have done, and if I were you, I'd get out of town. What would be racing through your mind? Would it be perhaps a marital affair that was outside of your own marriage? Or perhaps the income that you hid from the IRS? Maybe you were spending time at work playing video games. Or perhaps it was that expense account you had that became inflated. Well, it's called the G word, guilt. Sometimes guilt can really sit on our chest like a a big concrete block and make us so sick, sick enough even to die. Maybe there's someone on the planet you know who hasn't really known guilt. Or maybe in your own mind, there's an ongoing note that's saying to you or to me, you know, you're worthless. Well, I've never met such a person. But what things have sucked you under? Could it have even been perhaps when you were a young adult and you just blew your money, wasted it, or perhaps you had hurt someone by someone you said to really hurt them and not really apologize about it? Maybe your guilt isn't the result of a moment, but perhaps a season of your life. Maybe you've even failed as a parent, you say to yourself. The result of all these types of things? Guilt. And as we continue our series in Matthew of Places of the Passion, we we walk now to that courtyard. It's a courtyard in Jerusalem, the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. And in this courtyard, we see guilt. Peter's guilt and our guilt. And beyond the courtyard, though, we see grace. Grace for Peter and grace for us. To get the context here, you know, let's rewind a bit, a little bit earlier in this chapter. And let's go back to Gethsemane. You know, there was first what we would call the claim. Peter had answered Jesus, Though they will all fall away because of you, Lord, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus and Peter had been through so much together. It was three years earlier, and Jesus is walking on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and his brother Andrew fishing. And it was there that Jesus says to them, come with me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Peter and Andrew follow. And one day, about a year later, in Matthew chapter 14, 
Peter is in a boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee on quite a, a windy day. And Jesus comes and he walks out on the water and he tells Peter to come out, and Peter does. Well, we know that as Peter is walking on the water, he looks around and he begins to sink. And so Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs Peter, and saves him. A couple of chapters later, in Caesarea Philippi, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then about a week later after that, Jesus takes Peter along with James and John so that they can see his glory on that Mount of Transfiguration. And then Jesus invites those three same disciples. Where? To the Garden of Gethsemane. So that they can see his agony there and witness it. And no wonder Peter makes this claim, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But we've all made that claim, haven't we? Perhaps many of us who are confirmed as teenagers, you know, the pastor asks an important question. And it's the same one that we're going to ask our youth confirmants in just a couple weeks. And that question is, will you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? And we said, and those students will say, I will. When we got married, the pastor asked, will you take this man to be your wedded husband? And you women said, I will. And will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And we men said, I will. The claim. The claim? That's easy, isn't it? Peter had been in that Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus told him and the other two disciples, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. But Peter, you know, being so sure of his devotion to Jesus, you know, probably likely felt that he was prepared for any temptation to deny Christ. And all three of them ended up falling asleep. Peter failed when the test of his devotion came in that courtyard. And it didn't come like he really has expected it. He was thinking perhaps there's going to be a Roman soldier or a high priest who's going to come to him and demand that he die for Jesus. So he never saw it coming when a servant girl simply said, you are with Jesus. It's an inconvenient statement, really. But at that moment, with Jesus gone and everyone looking at Peter, you know, he suddenly realized how bad he would look, how embarrassed he would feel if he told the truth. It wasn't fear that trapped Peter. It was probably pride. Devoted disciples rarely see the attack that causes them to fail. And you know, we think we know what we're going to expect or that we think we're ready but we did not join the Lord in prayer either. We've set no protector to guard our soul's most vulnerable place. And then the enemy, Satan, attacks. So here's the point. When we fail to follow Jesus and we fall into that temptation, there's no avoiding the bitter aftertaste. First of all, God will lay bare our failure. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The rooster always crows. You know the feeling, don't you? When the rooster crows? When you realize that you've been ambushed by sin and perhaps have failed Christ miserably? And what will failure like that do to the devoted disciple? Well, such failure will break our hearts. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Haven't you ever sat there, perhaps with your hands holding your head, heavy-hearted over what you've done, ashamed, defeated, and helpless? As the events in the courtyard unfold, it's like watching cracks in a house's foundation begin to spread. A servant girl comes up to Peter, and she says, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denies it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. The first crack. And then Peter goes on to the courtyard entrance, and another servant girl sees him, and she says to the bystanders there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denies it, only this time with an oath. I don't know the man. Second crack. And when there's enough cracks, we know that there will always be a collapse. Always. After a little while, with the bystanders coming up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then Peter begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. We know from first century documents that the Jews in Galilee, they had a dialect much different in Aramaic than the people of Jerusalem. It's like when we hear someone talking who's from the deep south. Well, Peter's accent here betrayed him. What does Peter do? Well, the expression to invoke a curse on himself is where we get the English word anathematize. And that word means to be eternally condemned. And Paul uses anathematize also in that same Greek type of word here in Galatians 1.9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathematize. Eternally condemned. Peter would rather be condemned than to admit that he knows Jesus. Well, first comes Peter's evasive denial to that first girl, and then comes Peter's direct denial with an oath to the second girl. And now comes Peter's curse. What's next after that? Well, you know what comes next. The rooster crowed. For us, it happens when we say, well, maybe just one more drink, or just one more lie, or maybe just one more look at someone. Cracks. Cracks all around. But one more leads to one more after that, and then one more. And we know that when there are enough cracks, there will always be a collapse. And then what happens? The G word. Guilt. Then what are our options when we face that? Well, we could numb it with a drink during happy hour or perhaps go binge shopping. 
binge internet games, perhaps binge eating or drinking, or even binge TV watching. We can deny it. We can pretend that the rooster never crowed. We can come up with a plan to cover it all up. Perhaps we know that one lie leads to another lie, and then to another lie. Before long, we have to adjust that second lie so that it aligns with the first lie. And then the third lie has to align with the second lie. Or we can bury it. We could bury our guilt with a mountain of work, or perhaps just put up a whole schedule of appointments, a calendar there. The busier we are, the less time we have to spend with one person we've come to dislike, ourselves. Or we can punish it. We could cut ourselves or flog ourselves, if not with whips, then with rules. Create a long list of things to do for us. Pray more, study more, show up earlier and stay up later. Or perhaps we can minimize it. We didn't sin. We just lost our way. We didn't sin. We just got caught up in the moment. We didn't sin. We just took the wrong path. Maybe we try to redirect that guilt. Instead, now let's build a perfect family or have a perfect career. It might be that we want to offset it in those ways. And maybe we want to redirect those types of things at others to lash out at our kids or our spouse or co-workers, perhaps even our dogs or cats. It might be that driver in the next lane that you're going along the road with, or whoever it may be. Guilt, that G word, it turns us into miserable, weary, angry, stressed out people. It really sucks the life right out of us. But we know that the word grace, that's an important word too. And grace restores it. It gives us new life. How does that happen? Well, it's called the confession. We know that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He didn't try to numb it, deny it, bury it, minimize it, redirect it, or even try to offset it. Peter confessed his guilt, period. We know there's a good news side to all of this to when there's failure on the part of Peter, because Jesus will not give up on his disciples when they fail him. And while Peter goes out of the courtyard to confess, we know later that Jesus goes out to the cross to die. Jesus doesn't wait for us or Peter to get it all together to be able to overcome our temptations or fight our demons and conquer our sin. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our courtyard, we see guilt. But beyond our courtyard, the cross, we see grace. And grace means what for us? Well, that takes us to what we could call the comeback. Of course, as with Peter, Jesus knows all things about us and how we were made, how unreliable and sinful our hearts can become. We were the ones who had to be shown. 
And after he had faced his failure, Peter was forgiven and restored by Jesus. And then he was useful to the master, wasn't he? After that resurrection. Who preaches the sermon on Pentecost? Peter. Whose sermon converted 3,000 people that day? Peter. Who's the one who wrote two books in the New Testament? Peter. Now listen closely. Comebacks don't depend on how much we love Jesus. Comebacks depend on how much Jesus loves us. They don't depend on what we do for Jesus. They depend on what Jesus did for us. Comebacks don't depend on giving our life for Jesus. Comebacks depend on Jesus giving his life for us. In that disciple Peter, we can see that we can be forgiven. We can be restored. We can be restored to new life in Christ. First of all, focus on the problem solver. Not the problem. As we go through life, When a problem arises, we're apt to focus on that problem, then on Jesus himself, who helps us deal with those things. When a problem, crisis, or failure arises, we must put our faith in God in a way that enables us to withstand every crisis and every problem that comes our way. Why? Because God is our salvation. When Peter had gotten out of that boat with the wind around him, he found himself walking on the water as Jesus called out to him. But then the moment that he focused on the waves instead of Christ, he started to sink. He should have kept his eyes focused on Jesus. We know that. And likewise, too, our focus should always be on Christ, especially in the midst of failure and crisis. And when we do that, It puts everything into the proper focus. We can also seek and receive God's forgiveness. God gives it to those who fail him. He gives second chances to people who say, I blew it, Lord. The fact is, we all blow it. The Apostle Paul speaks about that from his own experience when he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Someone has said that there is no failure so great that Christians cannot rise from it. There is no failure so great that Christians cannot rise from it. Christians do not rise from failures like Peter by determination. Instead, we rise from them Because we know and we receive the mercy and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Know this one fact. If Jesus can forgive Peter, he can forgive you and me. There's nothing that we can do or say that's going to keep us outside of God's grace. That's why Paul could confidently say that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. That's the connection that keeps us with him. It's because Jesus is there. He lives in us. Even when we fail him, he's there. He says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. We've got a God who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So our story isn't over when Jesus is in it. 
Isn't that great? Our story is not over when Jesus is in it. We can all come back from guilt. How can we do that? Well, it's the best G word of all. It's grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all of us, keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.